0: Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. 11 through verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Concluding with the reading of the 18th verse. Let us unite together in a moment of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege it is ours again tonight to come together, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, And as we look into this particular subject tonight, we pray that you would reveal to us what your word has to say, open our hearts and our minds, that we might have a deeper understanding of of the reality of your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Flip Wilson, you know who he is, don't you? Popularized that little phrase, the devil made me do it. And it sort of gets in the same category of uh, did Santa come to see you and something about the Easter Bunny and a few other of those phrases that that we take for granted and say uh, uh, from time to time. And uh, sort of uh, wink with, uh, with one eye, you know, when we say to somebody, uh, the devil made me do it or did Santa come to see you, uh, all of us knowing that there's a certain amount of... Um, a lack of meaning to those words but still all of us understanding what we're saying well really is there a personality called the devil or is this another one of those little things that we could put in the category of all the other little sayings that we have and we know that really don't mean anything in the long run it's just a nice little thing to say a couple of Sunday school boys was discussing the subject after Sunday school one day when that had been the Sunday school lesson, and, and one little boy said do you really believe in the devil? The little fellow said, nah, it's just like Santa Claus, he's your dad. <laughs> so maybe that's all there is to him. I don't know, or do I? You don't know, or do you? Is there such a creature... What power does he have if there is such? Where did he come from? Where is he going? What influence does he have over you and me? Well, let's answer some of these questions. We'll start off with the first one. Does he really exist? Now, when we say the devil, somebody starts getting the, um, the idea that this is a guy in a red suit with horns and a tail and carries a pitchfork. Well, now I can describe uh, my father as one of those because he had a red suit and he worked in the fields and he carried a pitchfork. I don't remember seeing his horns or his tail, but uh, I can imagine that maybe he might have had. And I suspect that I've taken on those, uh, ca- those uh, characteristics of time myself. And I suspect some of you have acted pretty much like the devil. Have you not? But are you the devil? Does he really exist? Someone asked Billy Sunday this on one occasion, and he said, Yes, I believe in the devil for two reasons. Number one, the Bible says he is, and the second reason is I've done business with him. Now, some of you will know the name Billy Sunday. Most of you probably won't recognize that name. He was an outstanding evangelist of many years ago. Well, I can't speak to whether or not Billy Sunday had done business with him, but I think we can discuss the subject of what does the Bible have to say. So my first question, and if you want to take some notes, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to give you some facts and figures and several passages of Scripture this evening uh, on, on the subject. In the Scripture that we read, Paul said to put on the whole armor of God and he said to do it for a reason in order that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So evidently Paul believed in the person, the devil. The word devil is used 58 times in the New Testament. The word Satan is used in the New Testament 41 times. The words evil spirit are used in the New Testament 11 times. Throughout the Bible you can find Satan or the devil called the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, Beelzebub, the adversary, the dragon, Lucifer, the serpent, the god of this world. The Hebrew word for devil is Abaddon, A B E D D O N. Abaddon. The Greek for the word is Apollyon, A P O L L Y O N. It means the destroyer. So throughout the Scripture, we have at least a hundred times in the New Testament, and plus those times that are in the Old Testament, in which. The scripture refers to a person that we can take all of his names and put it into one name and call him the devil. Jesus over in the book of Matthew, and if you want to turn to Matthew 4.10, we will read what Jesus said about this person, the words himself. Now, here in the fourth chapter of uh, Matthew, Matthew, Jesus is discussing, or we have a discussion of, Jesus' experience with the devil in the wilderness. And the devil came and, attempt, and tempted the Lord on some occasions. And in the 10th verse, the Lord finally says, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. I read that verse to you for this one point. Our Lord himself called the devil by his name. Now if we believe that the Bible is accurate and true on any subject, we're going to have to accept its reality and its truth on the subject of the person of the devil and acknowledge without question that the Bible admits his existence as a person. Or a personality if you want to use that term. He exists according to the scripture. Secondly, let's take a look at his career. Take a look at his career. Back in the book of Ezekiel. If you want to turn back there with me to the 28th chapter. Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 15. We'll find some Uh, words that we'll need to remember and then keep your finger there because we may come back to it in a moment I'm going to go from Ezekiel to Isaiah in a moment but let's go to Ezekiel first and see something about the career of this devil that we are talking about beginning at the 11th verse of chapter 28 and you're going to find him referred to here and I'm not going to get into the whys and the wherefores of this but you'll find him in the 12th verse referred to as the king of Tyrus. Uh, Forget that phrase and just think of it as the devil when we get to that point. uh, Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the devil, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis and the topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper and the sapphire and the emerald, the carbuncle, gold, and the workmanship of thy tablets and of all thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Don't worry about all of that if you don't understand it. I'll get a little bit of explanation here in a moment. Thou art the anointed cherub. Notice what he calls him here. Thou art the anointed. This is Satan now being spoken. Of the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Notice those words. Here we have a description of Satan. In his beginning of of his career in which God calls Himself a created being he calls him perfect he calls him of the highest rank and we can go down to uh, uh, verses 17 and get a few more words and we'll find in verse 17 the word beauty and also the word wisdom he was wise and he was beautiful Oft times people think of the devil as being ugly. Let me dispel that theory in your mind if you have it. The devil is beautiful. The scripture identifies him as beautiful. We think of sin as being ugly. I have never yet seen an ugly sin. I have seen ugly results of sin. If sin were ugly, it would repulse us. It would go against our grain and we would reject it. But you look at sin in this world and you will discover that it is extremely appealing. It is beautiful. It's desirable. It makes men of distinction and and women of of society and all the other phrases that, that we hear in advertisements. It appeals to us because it makes us something that we are not now. Sin is beautiful. The consequences are not. Satan is beautiful, and he comes beautifully decorated. And that's why we get all of those uh, words there, how he's decorated in, in diamonds and all those other jewels that I don't even have the slightest idea what they are. I know what a diamond is, so we'll let it go at that. So here is a created being that God has brought into the world. He has made him perfect. He has given him the highest rank, Of the highest in heaven. He is beautiful. He is wise. He is all of this. Alright, go over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. You see, he does not stay this way. Because he has some other ideas of his own. Isaiah 14. And we will read beginning at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Here was the name that he had in heaven. He was called Lucifer, which is son of the morning or the morning star. Son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mouth of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet, verse 15, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell. Now, here is this beautiful, magnificent, creature who has a beautiful name called Lucifer who is in heaven with God and he gets too big for his riches and he decides that he ought to be God that he ought to have people worshiping him that he wants to take the place of God and so he sets out to overcome heaven and set himself upon a throne and he does not succeed This is the beginning of sin. We think sin began in the Garden of Eden sometimes when when Eve ate that fruit that was forbidden. No, it didn't. Sin began actually in heaven, in the heart and the mind of Satan, of the devil himself, when he began to think in his mind, I'm greater than God and I'm going to take his place. His fall, is described here in Isaiah. Now because of this fall, out of the grace of God, there comes a change in his name. And he will no longer be called Lucifer. But he will take on those other names that I read to you, all of them derogatory in nature, describing his character. A change in name throughout the scripture indicates a change in personality. Abram became Abraham. Isaac became Israel. Saul became Paul. Simon became Peter. And over in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 17, I just can't go by without going over there. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation 2.17 He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. You ever sung that? Of course you have. I'm sure you have. A new name. You're not called by your earthly name in heaven. I don't know what that name is. But the Lord said that you have been given a new name. And why were you given a new name? Because you are a new character. You have a new personality. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is a progression forward. The same progression that Abram be- Abraham became Abraham because he got closer to the throne of God and Isaac became Israel and on down the line. And Saul, so that, that mean character who went out to prosecute the Christians became Paul, the great evangelist. This is a progression forward for better things. You've got a new name written down in glory. But in the, in the person of Lucifer, it was a reverse transaction He had a beautiful name written down in glory, and it had to be changed because his character changed for the worse. He lost his status of uh, of eternal life and of fellowship with God because he set out to overthrow God. Now, what was his sin? What was his sin? Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, we read, Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne. This is Satan talking. I think we can summarize his sin as rebellion. Notice the things that he says. He says, I will. Whenever a person starts putting I into the picture, you have going to have to watch out because he's beginning to assert his individual feelings and authority. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's bad. In this particular case, it it is certainly bad. He said, I will ascend to heaven. He said, I will exalt my throne. He said, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, God did not create the devil. Now, listen to me, and don't go out of here with the wrong phrase. God created Lucifer. And Lucifer was reduced to satan or the devil or all those other phrases that i gave you earlier because he changed in his personality of one who loved and served god with all of his beauty and all of his being to one who tried to usurp god's authority now what's he going to do about it now point number three we get to the creation God created the universe and everything is in it, and as a part of this creation, he he created man. This was his supreme creation. There is nothing more beautiful, nothing more complex, nothing more desirable in God's mind and heart than man himself. So great did he love this magnificent creation of his that he was willing to give his own son to die, that he might retain his creation. But in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve a free will, a choice, the right to worship him if they wished and the right to deny him if they wished. And he told them that they could partake of anything in the garden but of the tree that was in the midst of the garden, that they were not to eat of it. And Satan comes along and says, Ah, oh, now, you don't believe all of that, do you? Sounds like things I hear in today's society. How many times does somebody come along and say to you, Now, you really don't believe all that stuff you hear preached at church, do you? This is Satan talking, you see. Now, you really don't believe that. Why, if you eat of that tree in the middle of the garden, he know, God knows that you're going to be just like him. You're going to be gods like he is, and he doesn't want any competition. It's quite obvious. I tried to compete with him, and he threw me out. And so the thing begins to develop that there comes a tremendous battle between God and Satan as to who is going to have possession of the greatest created thing of the universe, man himself. Who is going to have possession? Now, I've got to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to run you all over the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And we're going to see in these verses how Satan works in the hearts and minds of people. The reason that he works in the hearts and lives of people is to take people away from loving God. Now listen to what happens here in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world, and that's Satan, in whom Satan has blinded the mind of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Listen to it again. What is he doing? He is blinding the minds of people who don't believe so that they won't see the glory of God as is revealed in Jesus Christ. He blinds the eyes of the lost to keep them from seeing this marvelous light. The person of Christ himself. And he is doing it not because he loves us. Not because he loves man. He is doing it because he wants to spite God. He wants to tear down what God has built up. He wants to take away from God that which God loves the most. Now what's his strategy to do this? Point number four is his strategy. I'm going to suggest three plans that Satan has. I'm sure that perhaps other suggestions that could be made. You know, most most, uh, organizations... Have, have plan A and plan B and plan C. You do plan A. If plan A fails, you switch over to plan B. If that doesn't succeed, you go to plan C. You've always got a backup plan of some sort. If anybody's wise, they do that. The trouble is most of us only have one plan. If that doesn't work, we're sunk, you know. But Satan's got his plans made. Plan 1, plan A. He is trying to convince the world that he doesn't exist. Now listen to this one. Satan doesn't want you to believe in him. He doesn't want you to. He wants you to think that he does not exist. And he is completely satisfied when you see him as a man in the red suit with the tail and horns, Because nobody's going to believe that story. Therefore, we don't believe in Satan. If this is what Satan is, we don't believe in him. And if we don't believe in him, then he can subtly work because we don't see him. And we've played those little games of hide and seek when we really know the person's there and we, and we pretend that they're not and we just uh, block them out of our minds so that we don't see. We don't see Satan. And that suits him fine because he can work subtly in our lives and accomplish his plan if we won't acknowledge that he exists. However, if we acknowledge he exists, then we also acknowledge that the opposite exists, and that is Christ himself. Now, if plan A doesn't succeed, then he's going to have to start working on on the preaching that we do. We have been saying over several weeks now that the center of our preaching is the cross. Now, he is going to have to uh, get away from... People believing in the cross. And I'm going to have to go to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, in the first verse. Satan doesn't mind if people go to church as long as they will not believe in the cross. That's all he's got to do in his second plan. Just get people to, to not believe in the cross. Look, Second Peter two one says. But there were false prophets also among the people, uh, even as there shall be false teachers among you, false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, ever denying the Lord, ever denying the Lord that brought them and bring themselves into swift destruction. This is what Satan is afraid of, that if he doesn't get his preachers out there and his teachers out there denying the Lord, they're going to believe in him. And so if he does not succeed in plan A, he calls into works plan B, and that is go ahead and preach, go ahead and teach, just don't believe in the cross, in the crucifixion. He'll accept anything else as long as you don't believe in the crucifixion. Now, suppose you start believing in the crucifixion, then he's going to have to bring in a plan C. And that is, he's going to have to somehow keep people from accepting Christ as their Savior. He's got to keep them from accepting Christ as Savior. This is getting crucial now if people start thinking about accepting as Savior. So there are two ways that he tries this. Number one is... He is going to try to convince people that they're not good enough to be saved. And I have run into many people who would say to me, I'm just not good enough to be saved. There's no use in it. I just can't be that good. I can't be good enough. There's not enough that I can do. Uh, and, And on and on they go. But the Bible says, He that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. That's Jesus talking. And so we can dispel that theory real quickly with the Scripture. But there are lots of people who will tell you that I cannot be a Christian, I can't believe in Christ, because I can't be good enough. I used to have a deacon in my church who would never show up on Communion Sunday. And that bugged me till finally I went to him and I asked him, why was it that every Communion Sunday he missed? And his explanation to me was, I'm just not good enough to take communion. Let me tell you, folks, there's not a one of us good enough. Not a one of us. But God loved us enough anyway to give his son to die on the cross, that if we would believe in the cross, we could be saved. So Satan has got to keep people from believing uh, that they're not good enough and and accept on faith. The other side of the coin is some people are convinced that they're so good that they don't need to be saved. Now, if he can just get either one of these points across, Satan hasn't made. But the scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So neither theory will hold water, Well, as long as he can get people to believe one or the other, he has accomplished it. All right, to hurry on. We've got to go quickly. I've got two more points to make, and I'm running out of time. Point number five, what is Satan's destiny? Now, it may come as a shock to some of you. I hope not to very many of you. Satan doesn't control hell. I hope you know that. But there are lots of people who don't know that. They think when they, if, if they go to hell, and there are lots of people who who think that they might, uh, when they get to hell, they're going to be under the thumb of Satan. Let me tell you, you're never going to be under the thumb of Satan in hell. Satan is not the controller of hell. God owns hell. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 11, 41. 25, 41 says, Uh, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan and his angels are condemned to the same place that we call hell. Now, there's some difference in theology between what's hell and what's uh, um, this everlasting punishment of, of torment, but I'm not going to get into that this evening. We'll leave that alone. Over in Revelation 20.10, we have these words, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The destiny of Satan is eternal torment. He is free in this world today to roam because God permits it. The day is coming when he will be condemned to an eternal, everlasting torment with his angels, with the false prophet, and and with the people who have not accepted Jesus Christ. They all will be in the same torment. Now there are some, some things that I could say that we don't have time there about degrees in heaven and degrees in hell, but that's another subject for another time. Now, final point. What should be our attitude toward the devil as Christian people? What should we do about it? Let me suggest four things. Number one, we need to be aware that he exists and keep it very clear in our minds that he does exist, and that he is disguised in many forms. And sometimes we deal with him like Billy Sunday, unaware perhaps, But he is in the world, and he is there to do as much havoc in our lives as he possibly can, because that way he he gets back at God. Point number two, we should be aware of his motives. Remember, he wants to be like God. He wants to destroy the greatest creation that God has made. And when that time comes in hell, he is going to laugh a hyena's laugh at the people who are in hell and say, fooled you, didn't I? Yes, he is the greatest of all foolers. Be aware of his motive to usurp the authority of God third point, to be aware of his methods Eve was deceived she was not aware of his methods I've got to go to Revelation 12.9 for another point in Revelation 12.9 we have these words and the great dragon, this is Satan again was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, the word I want you to notice here in the ninth verse, he is called the deceiver. He is the great deceiver. All right, John 8:44. 44. Uh, I'm not going to turn to it because I'm running out of time, but John 8:44 calls him a liar. A liar is a deceiver. Let me call him one other thing. He's a counterfeiter. He is a counterfeiter. He likes religious people. Now again, hear me out. He likes religious people. He just doesn't like Christian people. And there's a distinction. He likes for people to go to church. Just as long as you don't get too religious and accept Christ in the process. Just as long as you don't serve the Lord, that's all right to go and listen to a sermon and, and, and go home. Just as long as you don't get all excited and do something wonderful for the Lord, he's, he's very well satisfied. He loves the cults. He loves them. He will help establish any cult that's possible, and you know very well today that he has his own religion. He has people who worship him and have set up their own churches for that very purpose. There are lots of counterfeit things in this world, and there are counterfeit Christians as well. We generally call them hypocrites. Be careful who you call that, because you might be making a mistake. But he loves things that look like what they're not. That's great. He loves a person who looks like a Christian who is not. Because he has deceived people into thinking they're Christian when they're not, he loves this. And my fourth point, be aware of his limitations. God is infinite. Satan is finite. God is all-powerful. Satan is limited. God has all power. Satan has only the power that God allows him to have. Let me close with a very familiar verse. That is the theme of the Oral Roberts ministry. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have control over Satan because in us is the life of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in our heart and greater is he that is in us than he than satan who is in the world so we have the upper hand but we've got to be aware that he does exist and he does have a strategy and he does hate god and he will wreck havoc in our lives not because he has any particular concern about us but because he wants to do everything he can to destroy the witness and testimony of god in this world through God's people, the church, you and me, his children. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you. Trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.